Let's turn our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And turn first to verse 54. Luke 22, 54. As we think about the resurrection of Christ this morning, we're going to be focusing on verses 61 and 62 and start from from there and then talk later about uh, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, So let's begin reading Luke 22, verse 54 to 62. Speaking of Jesus at his trial after his arrest, it says, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is God's holy word. Let's pray for help. Our Lord God, we do come before you and you speak to us in your word. You tell us that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, which divides even a joint from the marrow and soul and spirit. Lord, we pray that your word would be active upon us, speaking to our hearts, piercing it where it needs to be, so that we might see our need for a Savior, a need for Christ, and that we might go to him and find your grace, and that we might be healed through Jesus Christ. This is not something we can do of ourselves. We rely upon your Holy Spirit. So we pray, give us your spirit. Open our eyes and work in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've heard the saying, I'm sure, that a picture is worth a thousand words. So if a picture is worth a thousand words, how many words is a look worth. A look can communicate a whole lot of things without using any words. There are looks that communicate love. Uh, When a bride and groom are standing at the altar on their wedding day, you see them, they're not even talking to each other, they're just staring at each other, goo goo gaga, just looking at each other in love. Looks can also communicate hatred. Maybe you've received one of those looks. You've had someone glare at you with absolute hatred. They don't have to say anything. You know that they hate you. Looks can also communicate anger. Kids, maybe you have seen this look on your parents' face. You've done something wrong. Your parents find out about it. Your parents don't need to say a word to you. They look at you, and you know you are in big trouble. But kids, you also have looks, 
And us parents, we can see looks on your faces too. We can see the look of shame when you've done something wrong and then you might try to lie about it or hide it. What parents can see is a look on your face. You know your conscience is ashamed and so you have a look of shame on your face. All of these looks communicate lots and lots of words. A look can be worth a thousand words. And so today, we are going to look at a look of Jesus. And we're actually going to look at two looks, one of them here in Luke 22. Another one is not directly mentioned, the second look, but I will try to show you that it did take place. We're going to look at this look of Jesus. This look of Jesus, I think, is worth a sermon that is thousands of words. We see here in this passage that I just read that after Peter denies Jesus and the rooster crows for the third time, Luke tells us in verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter uh, Jesus didn't say anything. Jesus looked at Peter. And the result of this look is verse 62, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all think that it's pretty important to tell us this story about Peter denying Jesus three times. They all include it in the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, which is pretty rare. Uh, there are lots of events that we only get when we have to put all four Gospels together, but they all tell us Peter denied Jesus three times. But it's only Luke who mentions this detail about the story that we see in verse 61. Only Luke tells us that after the rooster crowed a third time, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. J.C. Ryle says, that in that look, there was a sermon that Peter never forgot. And so we want to try to understand from the Bible, what does this look mean? So we're going to look at this passage and some other passages later on. First, to understand the significance of this look. Why, why does this matter? Why is this a big deal? Then the meaning of the look. And then third, we'll look at the second look. So first, what's the significance of this look in verse 61? Well, this look is important because to Peter, Peter would have thought this was the last time he would ever see Jesus. And that's important to understand the story and why he goes out and weeps bitterly. It's Part of the reason he does that is because he th thought at this moment in verse 61, this was the last time he would ever see Jesus. Can you imagine that the last look from your Lord, your master, the one who saved you, the one who you saw do all these miracles, and, and you heard all of his teaching for years and years, and you practically lived with him and followed him around all the time, and this was the last look that you got. So how do we know that this was what Peter was thinking? Well, that's what I want to show you uh, for the significance of this. We have to put, a, put together information from all four Gospels. A lot of these passages I'm not going to look up, but they're there in the bulletin and the outline. And later on, if you want to look them up and read them, you can put all this information together. So the first thing we need to understand is that the disciples didn't know or didn't get that Jesus would rise from the dead. And so that's why Peter would have thought this was the last look. He wasn't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. They should have known from the Old Testament, but they didn't get it. Jesus himself told them that he would rise from the dead, but they didn't get what Jesus was saying. They were stubborn. They were thick-headed. And so Mark especially tells us about this. In Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, 
Mark says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus said this plainly. I'm going to come back from the dead after three days. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter rebuked him. That that shouldn't happen. That's not going to happen. You're talking crazy talk, Jesus. That's essentially what Peter would have said. So Jesus was plain, but they didn't get it. Jesus says the same thing a second time in Mark chapter 9. Pastor Hill read that passage in Sunday school. And they still didn't get it. They started arguing about who is the greatest. Jesus says the, the same thing a third time in Mark chapter 10. And their response in Mark 10 is that James and John start fighting over who's going to be at his right hand in the kingdom of heaven. So you would think, if a guy says, hey, guess what? I'll be the only man in history to rise from the dead after being dead. And I'm going to be dead three whole days and then rise. You'd think you'd have some questions. Jesus, how's that going to be? Jesus, what does that mean? Jesus, that sounds pretty important. Should we go tell people? They don't get it. It's as if he didn't even say it. It just doesn't register in their heads. And so they don't understand Jesus will rise from the dead. We see that with the disciples. We see that with the women at the empty tomb. And Luke's story in chapter 24, verse 4, when they come to the tomb, it says they're perplexed. And then the two angels speak to the women and say, Don't you remember? He said he would be killed and rise on the third day. And it says in verse 8 of Luke 24, And then they remembered his words. How could you forget if someone says they're going to rise on the third day? But they had forgotten until these two angels reminded them that he would rise on the third day. So, there is a spiritual blindness. For whatever reason, they just couldn't comprehend this. Well, then we have Jesus appearing to two men on the road to Emmaus. And when he speaks to them, it's as if he is baffled that they don't understand what's happened. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter his glory? Jesus is saying, this is in the Old Testament. It's all over the place. It's necessary that Christ was going to suffer and rise and enter into his glory. You're foolish. You're you're slow to believe. If you can't get this, Jesus seems to have expected them to understand. And then here's the last verse. When we read earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Peter and John go into the tomb. Uh, They look in, and they don't understand. Verse 9 of John 20 says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. So they're wondering, what's going on? Why is the tomb empty? Because they didn't understand that he must rise from the dead. So, if Peter is looking at the empty tomb and he still doesn't understand, then we can conclude that here in Luke 22, verse 61, when the Lord looks at Peter, he doesn't understand. I'll see him in a few days. Jesus is going to rise from the dead. It'll all be good. No, he has no clue. So, This is significant because Peter thinks this is the last time he'll see Jesus. He doesn't understand Jesus will rise from the dead. Another important point to know is that Peter doesn't see Jesus on the cross. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell us that a group of women followed Jesus to the cross. They were his disciples. They helped him and served him in his ministry. Mary Magdalene was one of those women. They go with him to the cross, and they're watching the whole thing happen. 
And so apparently the disciples, when Jesus is arrested, they all scattered to different places. Peter ends up at this courtyard here uh, at the trial of Jesus. The rest of them are scattered. And then the Gospel of John tells us that John was the only apostle who was at the cross. Jesus speaks to John on the cross, John 19, 25, and 26. So based on the fact that we're told the women were there, we are told that John was there, I think we can conclude from that, uh, if there were other disciples there, we would have been told. And so as far as we know, when Peter goes out in verse 62 and weeps bitterly, he probably goes to be by himself. He might even go to his own home. But he goes away, and he doesn't see what happens at the cross. He might only hear about it later on from John after they talk about Jesus' death. So, Peter is overcome with grief here. He's completely abandoned Jesus at his greatest hour of need, at his own death. And then he doesn't even stick around to see if Jesus is truly going to be killed. And remember, he doesn't know Jesus will rise from the dead. This is the last look he sees from Jesus as far as he knows. So this is why that look is significant. Well, now that we have all that information, let's think about the meaning of this. What's the point? How does it apply to us? Well, let's again look at these verses in 61 and 62. Luke says that after the rooster crows, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. I want you to notice here the title that Luke gives to Jesus. Luke says, the Lord turned. Peter remembers the saying of the Lord. Normally, Luke, when he writes his gospel, he uses the name Jesus. In verse 51, verse 52, it's Jesus said, Jesus said. That's how he normally writes his story. Many times he uses the pronoun he over and over again, because we know it's a story about Jesus. So he says he all the time in the Gospel of Luke. So maybe, I don't know, 90 or 95% of the time, Luke uses he or Jesus in the Gospel. It's only a very few times that Luke calls him the Lord. And so in this passage, Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, seems to think that it's important to mention or make notice of the fact that we won't call him Jesus here, even though it's Jesus. We're going to give him the title, the Lord. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. So the Lord is the reference to the name of God. It was given as a title for Jesus because Christians believed that Jesus is the one God revealed in the flesh. It's the title of Yahweh, the name Yahweh. He's the Lord, the Lord of the Old Testament, the I am that God revealed himself as in Exodus chapter 3. It is the one true God, the Lord, who turns and looks at Peter. It is the Lord who is revealed in the Old Testament as the one who appears at the burning bush. It's the Lord who appears before Isaiah in the vision of the temple and the throne room. Isaiah can't stand in the presence of the Holy Lord, Yahweh, God. Isaiah comes undone as he is in the presence of the Lord. Moses stands on holy ground when he is at the burning bush with the presence of God, and so he must take off his shoes. It is this Lord who looks at Peter. Jesus, he has to veil his divinity, his glory, in his flesh. Because if he didn't, 
Everyone around him would just die. If we come into contact without any barriers or hiding of God's glory, we die. And so Jesus, veiled in flesh, yet he still has all the glory of the Lord. This Lord, full of glory, looks at Peter. And so when he looks at Peter straight in the eyes, you can probably conclude that Peter felt completely exposed. Just like Isaiah felt completely undone in the throne room of God. Just like Adam and Eve felt completely naked and exposed and ashamed when their sin entered into the presence of the Lord. The Lord looked at Peter. And would have exposed all of his sin. Then it says, notice also, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The Lord turned. So the courtyard where Jesus was probably was shaped a lot like this building here. The courtyard would have been back there. And there would have been a platform, a kind of stage. There would have been chairs like these, the little the places where the judges would sit and the, the high priests and the judges, the elders, they would have sat there trying the case in a sense. And so Jesus is standing on the platform. He would have been turned and there would be the judges sitting there, soldiers on the side. He's turned with his back towards the courtyard and Peter is out there in the courtyard by a fire. Jesus has to turn to look at him. So it's not like Jesus is here doing his thing at the trial, and oh, somebody walks by. Oh, that's Peter. Oh, yeah, I need to remember Peter. I'll say a quick prayer for Peter. No. The Lord is being tried. The Lord is being falsely accused. He's being yelled at. He's being beaten. He's being spat upon. All these things are being thrown at him. And yet as these things are happening to Jesus, he's listening. He's listening for a rooster. And he's counting. That was the first time. That was the second time. That was the third time. And the third time the rooster crows, Jesus is paying attention. And so he turns and looks at Peter. This look is not a glance at Peter. It's not just, oh, I see him in my field of vision. No, he turns specifically because he looks at Peter. As Jesus is being falsely accused, on his mind is Peter. He wants to turn. And make sure his eyes meet with Peter. John Newton wrote a hymn uh, called Looking at the Cross. And he wasn't writing about these verses, but he wrote a hymn imagining looking at Jesus at the cross and Jesus looking at him. And I've always thought about um, what he says about the look of Christ on the cross. And I've always wondered if this was what the look was that Peter saw. In the hymn, John Newton writes about how he looks upon evil as an unbeliever until another look stopped him in his tracks. He says he saw Jesus on the cross. This is all imagination. But he sees Jesus and he says, Jesus fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. And he says, surely never till my latest breath will I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me to despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did. In other words, he didn't realize that he was putting Jesus upon the cross. But now my tears are vain. There's nothing I can do about it. Can't fix it. 
Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. All of this, when he sees the look, Jesus fixed his eyes on me. This must have been the, what Peter felt like when the Lord turned and looked at him, plunging him into guilt, plunging him into sadness. Yes, I am the one who has denied the Lord. My sins have caused all of this. Peter would not have been able to hide as his sin is being exposed before the Lord. But this wouldn't have been the glare of hatred, the death glare. It would have been a look also of compassion and unending love to Peter. This look was not a sinful look because Jesus was without sin. Think about the sinful looks that we give. Jesus could have given him a condescending look. You big dummy. What were you thinking denying me? Could have been a scolding look. What a shame you are, Peter. After all that I've done for you for years, how could you deny me now? But Jesus would not have given him a scolding look. It could have been a prideful look if Jesus had sinned. It could have been a, see, Peter, you, you were so proud of yourself. You were so arrogant. You said you weren't going to deny me. I told you that after the rooster crowed three times, you would deny me three times. I was right. You were wrong. But it wasn't a prideful look. As I said, it could have been a rebuke. Peter, uh, Peter has been rebuked before by Jesus. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. That's a pretty strong rebuke. But a rebuke is not sinful. This is a rebuke, but a rebuke in love. Conviction, yet compassionate. Spurgeon says, I think it was a look which revealed to Peter the blackness of his sin and also the tenderness of his master's heart towards him. Jesus would have looked at him filled, yes, with the holiness of the Lord, but also with the holy love of the Lord, the tenderness of the master's heart towards Peter. We can also come to some conclusion about the kind of look Jesus gave based on Peter's response. Verse 62, he went out and wept bitterly. What look from Jesus would make us go out and weep bitterly? Peter was full of guilt, full of conviction. But at the same time, it wasn't the kind of guilt that was a response the way Judas responded when he went and hanged himself. Because as Peter experienced the conviction upon, but from the look of Jesus' face, he must also have seen the compassion and love on Jesus' face. And really, it's compassion that would make a man weep bitterly like this. I'm sure you've probably experienced people scolding you, looking at you in anger. How do you feel in your heart when a person does that? When people are angry at you and they give you that scolding look, your response is anger. And you have to stifle that. You have to put that down, change your heart. Because the natural reaction to someone's anger at you is to respond in anger. But when you've done something wrong, and you know that you're guilty, and then you come before the person you've sinned against, and instead of seeing anger on their face, you see compassion, love, that is what makes you 
break down in tears. You realize you sinned against someone who really loves you. Spouses feel this way when they know that they've sinned against their spouse and their spouse reaffirms their love for you. All it does is just make you feel even more bad for what you've done, the way you treated your spouse. Kids feel this when they feel the response of love from their parents. Peter weeps bitterly because he knows he's denied the one who loved him, who has shown compassion to him. And when he sees that look on the face of Jesus, he says, how can I sin against a savior like this? So what does this mean for us? Well, let's put ourselves first in Peter's shoes. We're in Peter's shoes when we deny Christ. It's easy for us to sing that song that we sang. Jesus, and shall it ever be a mortal man ashamed of thee? Ashamed of thee, whom angels praise, whose glory shine through endless days? Easy song to sing, isn't it? But actually, that the song is the point. It's a, it's a rhetorical question. It's getting across the point. How could I be ashamed of him whom angels praise, whose endless glories shine through endless days? It's absurd. It's ridiculous that we are so ashamed of him because the reality is, if we're honest, we are ashamed of him at times. Sometimes we are ashamed to speak of him. We are ashamed to be known as belonging to him. We are ashamed of him and we deny him every time that we sin against him. When we covet and desire things in this world, it's our hearts saying that these things that are right before us, they are more glorious than thinking about the glory of Christ in my heart. When you give in to sin and the works of the flesh, you're choosing one master over another, one Lord over another. You say, well, I prefer this Lord and his rules and all the things he allows me to do rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. His commandments are too much of a burden. I'd rather not keep them. And so I will disobey them and serve another master. When we have sins of omission, we don't do what we ought to do. We neglect seeking Christ. We're saying he's not really that important. I don't really need him. I don't really need to spend much time today thinking about him. How could it ever be? How could it ever be that he whom angels praise, whose glory shine through endless days, and yet we treat him as if he is so unimportant in our lives? And so in this way, we are like Peter, ashamed of him, denying him. So how should we feel? about our sin. Thomas Watson said, we're to find as much bitterness in weeping for sin as ever we found sweetness in committing it. Our bitterness after the fact should match the sweetness that we found in committing that sin. So what is it that's going to make you feel the bitterness of sin? Well, like Peter, it's the look of Jesus. Like the look that Jesus gave Peter. Obviously, Jesus doesn't physically look at us. Jesus bodily right now is ascended into heaven. He's going to be there until his return. He doesn't physically look at us. But we have the Lord, by the power of the Spirit, who turns to us and exposes our hearts, whose eyes pierce our souls and leave us like Isaiah, totally undone, with nowhere to hide, no fig leaves to cover up our sin. We have sinned against the Lord. The Lord turns, and he looks at us by the Spirit, and he exposes your sin. But the Lord also looks upon his people with compassion and love, 
In fact, it's because of his compassion that he cuts, that he wounds. He says in Hosea, I wound that I might heal. I tear so that I might bind you up. He, in his love, sends his spirit to convict you, to press you down with the burden of sin so that you might also see his look of compassion and love to cover your sins, to forgive you, to put them away as far as the east is from the west. The Lord looks upon you, his people, who have faith in him. And he loves you. He looks upon you in compassion. If the Lord had time to turn and look at Peter, when he was being falsely accused before the high priest, do you think the Lord Jesus has time to think about you right now? Do you think that as he stands at the throne room of heaven, having offered up his life as a sacrifice to be the mediator for your sins, and that his entire purpose right now, Hebrews says, he ever lives to make intercession for you, and so his entire purpose and living right now is so that he can forever stand before the throne and make intercession for you, that he is like the great high priest Aaron who had the names of Israel engraved on those stones that were weighing down on his chest, and so that in the same way Jesus has his people upon his hearts as he goes before the throne of the Father. Do you think if, if that's what Jesus is doing right now, that he doesn't have time to look at you and to reassure you of his love. Yes, this is why Jesus is in heaven, to plead for us, his people. This is why Jesus went through this trial. It's why Jesus went to the cross. It's why he bore the wrath of God hanging upon the cross because Jesus loves his people. He loves all who will come to him by faith. And so if Jesus loved us while he was dying on the cross, while we were his enemies, how much more now will he love you and turn and look at you? And so this turning of Christ to us in love should make us Weep bitter tears. How can we continue to sin against this Savior who loved us? How can we be ashamed of him who is not ashamed to call you his brother? How can we be so cruel to the one who is so kind to us? So Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. But the bitter tears aren't the end of Peter's story. And so bitter tears for us is not the end of our story either. So let's think now about a second look that Jesus gave Peter. The grace of the second look. So remember that after Peter goes away weeping, he doesn't see Jesus on the cross. As far as he knows, this was the last look Jesus gave him. Maybe you've heard stories or maybe you've experienced it yourself uh, about uh, people's guilt when a loved one dies. Uh, someone dies in a tragic accident or something like this. And let's say the husband and wife the day before they got in a fight. Or a child got in a fight with a parent. Uh, a father or husband leaves for work that day, doesn't hug or kiss his wife, doesn't say I love you to his children. And then goes off. and He doesn't know it, but that was the last time he would ever see them. He dies that day. And this is a lot the, the guilt that a lot of people have. They have guilt that their last experience with the person they love was a fight, or they didn't hug, they didn't say, I love you. That would have been what Peter would have thought when he heard Jesus is dead. 
Jesus would, uh, Peter would have thought, I denied him the last time I saw him, and I'll never see him again. But, as I said, that's not the end of the story. And that's why we're talking about this story today. It would have been the end of the story if Jesus never rose from the dead. The end of the story would have been Peter overwhelmed for the rest of his life with bitter tears and guilt over his sin. He denied the Lord who loved him so much. But that wasn't the last time Peter saw Jesus. Now, Jesus rose from the dead, and it's not just because of Peter. Jesus rose from the dead to show that the sins of all his people had been paid for, that he has taken our sins with him to the grave. The wages of sin is death. And so when Jesus dies, he's dying as the payment of sin for his people, as a substitute. Now, when the debt is paid, when the wages are paid, the father sees that the payment has been made. And so it's not just for Jesus to remain dead. Why would you keep punishing someone when the punishment has already been fulfilled? Right? Imagine someone being in prison and they have a 30-year sentence. When their sentence is done, they get out of prison. Death was the sentence. When the sentence is fulfilled, death is defeated, sin is paid for, the Father must let him go. And so, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, raise Jesus from the dead. That's the big picture of why Jesus rose from the dead. That's what it means for our salvation. But when Jesus rose from the dead... He wanted to have a personal meeting. One person that he wanted to see alone was Peter. So again, all these passages are there in the bulletin. I don't have time to read them all. But I'm trying to put together what the four Gospels say. The Gospels tell us that Jesus is put in the tomb and that Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. And Matthew says... This other Mary is with her. Then she goes and Mary Magdalene goes and tells Peter and John. Peter and John run to the tomb. John gets there first. He doesn't go inside. Peter goes inside. He sees the linen cloths folded up. And again, remember, he, he doesn't understand what's going on. So then Peter and John leave. And Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Jesus tells Mary that... He will meet the disciples in Galilee, and later on, Jesus appears to them there. Thomas and Judas aren't there, but the rest of the ten are there in Galilee. But then also, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 24, that before Jesus goes to Galilee, he appears to two men on the road to Emmaus. And so he has this conversation, and then he, he, he meets them, those two men they go to the disciples and they say in Luke 24, 33, it says, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road. Interesting. If you saw the resurrected Christ, and you went and you go and tell someone, what's the first thing that you would say? The Lord appeared to us. Here's everything that he said. He opened to us the entire Old Testament. He told us how every part of the Old Testament was about him. He basically just unlocked the key to understanding the entire Old Testament. Let me tell you all about it. That's not what they say. The Lord has risen indeed, and he appeared to Simon. That's what they focus on, or that at least Luke in telling the story, Luke is saying this is what they focused on, that Jesus appeared to Simon. That's Peter. So Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. Later, he appeared to the two men on the road. In between, he must have appeared to Simon, and Jesus told those two men that he appeared to Simon Peter. We also see Paul mention this in 1 Corinthians 15. 
I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Paul thinks it's important to point out Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, first, then to the twelve. Jesus made a personal appearance to Peter. Those two passages, that's all we know about it. We don't know what Jesus said. We don't know what look Jesus gave Peter. We just know that it happened. And so we know Jesus did look at Peter. They talked about something. I mentioned that hymn by John Newton. Well, at the end of the hymn, he writes about a second look Jesus gave him. Remember, he's talking about the cross, imagining this. The first look plunged him into despair as he realized his sin. But then Newton says, a second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayest live. A second look says, I freely all forgive. Like I said, we don't know the look Jesus gave Peter when he appeared to him. But we can, I think, assume that because Jesus sought him out, because Jesus personally wanted to appear to him, that Jesus did desire to reconcile with Peter, show his forgiveness towards Peter. And the Gospel of John, chapter 21 We have Jesus commissioning Peter to the ministry. And he says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. But what if that's the second step? That's the call to ministry. But there was a first step, which was reconciling a relationship where Peter had sinned against him and there needed to be reconciliation before a call to the ministry. And what if Jesus wanted to do this personally instead of Can you imagine him appearing in Galilee with all the others in the room? And Peter's like in the corner, like scared to scared to look. What's he going to what's he going to say about me? What's how's he going to look at me? And that would have that would have been awkward, right? But Jesus appears personally to Peter. I think we can assume it's because he desires reconciliation with him. And then when, he, when they're all together, everything is good. It's all been dealt with. Because Jesus has already appeared personally to Peter. So this is the same for us. One reason that Jesus rose from the dead and why it matters is so that you won't stay in your bitter weeping over your sin. So that you would not just feel constant guilt that your sins were placed upon Jesus at the cross. Yes, it's important. It's crucial that Jesus would pay for our sins at the cross. But you also need to know the joy of a relationship with Jesus Christ, the living Lord. Jesus came back to life so that we could have a personal relationship with him. And the risen Lord Jesus said it was better for him to go away so he could send his Holy Spirit to us. Because the Spirit comes to us. The Spirit can appear to us, not physically, but reveal himself to us. The Spirit seeks us and finds us and reveals the glory of Christ to us. Reveals to us the love of Jesus Christ so that we can personally know this resurrected Lord Jesus. These aren't just doctrines that we believe in. This is a person that we worship as God, but that we also know as our Savior and our brother. Jesus comes to us personally by the Spirit. And without that work of the Holy Spirit, you cannot know this living, resurrected Lord. And then 
There will come a day when we will actually see Jesus face to face. You will appear before Christ. Isaiah says, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Isaiah and Revelation say that the Lord Jesus himself will wipe away every tear from your eye when he appears personally to you or you appear before him. I don't think that means just that there's not going to be any crying in heaven. The way Isaiah talks about it is as if Jesus personally himself will walk up to you. Wipe off every tear that's on your eyes. Tears of sin, tears over guilt, tears of shame, tears of sorrow and loss will be wiped away when you see Jesus face to face. I wonder if Peter was sitting in a room weeping and Jesus appears and wipes away his tears. We don't know that's what he did, but that's what he'll do for us. Our relationship with him will be perfect. It will be reconciled and it will be sinless. So have you received the grace of a second look? The first look breaks you and convicts you of your sin. The second look restores you and reconciles you. Christ is risen from the dead. The sins of God's people have been paid for and buried in the grave. There is no reason for God's people to continue to be weighed down by the burden of sin. But the only one who can fix this problem is Jesus. You must go to him, depending upon him, putting all your faith and trust in him, personally knowing him. Do you go to the risen Lord. Jesus is alive. Let's go to him for his grace. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you. Our words can't express thankfulness for how you have dealt with our sin. How you bore the wrath of God in our place. And how in your great love you still love us. Who are your enemies. You loved us by dying, by rising, and by giving us your spirit. You are the great shepherd of the sheep who lays down his life and takes it up again. Help us to know your grace. Restore us in a right relationship with you. To cast all of our burden of our sin upon you. To know your infinite love that you have for your people. We pray in your name.